says low battery. That's because it's like 6.30 in the evening or something. They had it set. last Sunday for their purview or review. Is that my little timer? Is that all it has to be on the left? Okay. How about now? Does that work? Is that better? Yes. Test. Oh, yeah, that's better. That's better. Okay. Now it's echoing? Well, bring, bring a friend to absorb more of that sound. Uh, but anyway, so Instead of just doing the deacons on the 12th and then coming into the church conference on the 26th and presenting the budget and having everybody just vote on it right there on the spot, uh, we're going to have a presentation on the 19th. It won't be long, but uh, it's the finance team's opportunity to present that to a larger segment of the church body a week in advance of the business meeting so that when you come into the business meeting on the 26th, you'll have a little better idea of what's going on. Does that make, you know, of what, what's being proposed? And so I think that's good. That'll help with facilitation of all the communication. And then at our church business conference on the 26th, and that'll be at 5 p.m., and we'll be voting on this coming fiscal year's budget, uh, our new ministry year slate of ministry team and committee assignments. Uh, we'll be voting on messengers for the Baptist General Convention of Texas meeting in November. We will be voting on the proposed bylaw changes that our leadership advisory team spent several months uh, working on, had three listening sessions, as you all recall. That will be voted on at that meeting as well. And uh, they will also, we'll also hear a report from our uh, 
uh, church pastor search team as well. So that will be a full business meeting on the 26th at 5 o'clock, but I hope you'll all plan to head out, uh, come out for that. All right, and then on here on the back side, you just see there that the search team has asked us to do a survey. You should have received an email. I received an email. If you didn't receive the email, there are hard copies of the survey over here at the welcome desk. In uh, the search team, it's just four or five questions. It wants to help them build a profile of the kind of person uh, that the church at large hopes that they'll be uh, looking for. So that they're asking us to have that turned in uh, by the 19th, which is this coming Sunday. So, all right. Now that the mic's working, let's open with a word of prayer, and uh, we'll dig right into the story of Joseph. Lord, thank you so much for... Uh, just your presence with us at all times, Lord, that we don't go anywhere in this world that we escape uh, your sight, your purview, your control, Lord, of, of all circumstances. And so, Father, I just uh, thank you that you're even present with us here tonight, Lord, that uh, uh, we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We know that through our indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, that Christ is ever present with us, and so we're just grateful for that. I pray, Lord, that we would honor you uh, with everything we say and do. Uh, give us open our hearts and ears as we consider a very familiar story, and Lord, we just give this time to you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, uh, this is a really small print Bible I've got here, so I print it off. Y'all don't think I'm like being irreverent to the Bible, but I printed off, I blew it up a little bit for me to read off of. So if I'm looking more at this paper than the Bible, that's why. All right. So the story of Joseph, and I've, I've called this God meant it for good, and I'm always going to give credit where it's due. I, I, that's not original to me when it comes to the studying the life of Joseph. I came across a little book, goodness, 20 years ago uh, by a pastor named R.T. Kendall. And it's a study on the life of Joseph, and that's the title of the little book, God Meant It for Good. And so anytime I come back to the story of Joseph, I remember the title of that little book. Now, we're not going to follow his outline, uh, but we're going to borrow his title. And so uh, that's what we're calling this because we just see the hand of God throughout the whole story. So let's talk introduction here for a minute. The story of Joseph is the longest narrative in the entire book of Genesis, and it's really not even close. Uh, and some would even say it's the most masterfully designed story in the entire book of Genesis, if not the entire Old Testament. Um, and uh, it's been popular at times throughout pop culture, uh, in literature, and in, in theater. Thomas Mann was a German novelist and a Nobel laureate. And he was so enamored with the story of Joseph that he expanded it. You know, he kind of gave it dialogue that maybe the text doesn't necessarily give us. He expanded it into a three-volume set of novels. And when it was published in 1930, some people claimed at that time that it was the greatest literary work of the 20th century. Now, the 20th century was only 30 years old at that time. But that's basically like them saying, hey, this is the best thing to come along in the last 30 years. At that time, one of the reviewers said, this is a magnificent, magnificent, excuse me, story here 
which exceeds the drama opulence and movement of anything that Hollywood has ever dreamed of. And as you think about the story as we go through it the next three weeks, uh, you can't make this stuff up. You can't. Uh, Now, consider then that this divinely inspired accounting that we have in Genesis far exceeds any fictional rendition, whether by uh, a novelist or a Broadway musical, you know, the Technicolor dream coat. There's a theological depth here, and at the same time, a theological subtlety here in the story that is just so far and away beyond what a novelist or a Broadway composer could come up with. We know this story is from the very heart of God. Uh, Also by means of introduction, in some ways, the story of Joseph is a story of faithfulness in exile. We won't necessarily get to that part tonight, but it's a story of faithfulness in exile. And in Joseph's case, Joseph's case, that exile is in Egypt. Now later on, we're going to see a similar pattern of faithfulness in exile in the life of Daniel. So here's a little plug for uh, the next series in our Wednesday nights. I'm going to have three weeks here on the life of Joseph, and then you start right away. And then Terry's going to be sharing a a short series on Daniel. Uh, I don't believe a lot in coincidence, so maybe that's serendipitous. Uh, But anyway, you see this pattern of faithfulness in exile. Uh, Joseph and Daniel both displayed the wisdom of God. Both men interpreted the dreams of their pagan kings. Neither one would allow himself to be compromised. Both were jailed for their obedience. And both eventually, Joseph and Daniel, both eventually became vice regents of their adopted lands. So I just helped, I gave, get you, that get you started. Yeah, write all that down. Uh... So you say, okay, well, so he's a pattern or he's a type. Y'all know that word, type? You come across that sometimes? I've got a corny joke I want to tell you. So do you know what type means in the, in, when we're talking about Christ in the Bible, a type? Like a foreshadowing or a pre? Okay, can I tell you my corny joke? David Ramsey, can I tell you my corny joke? Okay, y'all know who Melchizedek is in the Old Testament, Melchizedek? And we know Moses, as we read the Old Testament, you can find gospel thread woven throughout the life and story of Moses in, in the Exodus, right? So here's my corny joke. Jesus, Moses, and Melchizedek walked into a restaurant. All right. What's the matter, Terry? You're shaking your head already. She's already shaking her head. Jesus, Moses, and Melchizedek walked into a restaurant and the maitre d looked at jesus and he said sir i'm sorry we don't serve your type here so moses and melchizedek left uh you get that okay that's so bad (laughs) scott you like that (laughs) all right so but terry did you want some notes on there so but listen more importantly than Being a sort of a type before Daniel, in the story of Joseph, we see a foreshadowing in many ways of Jesus Christ himself, whose rejection by men was crucial for our deliverance. And there are these parallels throughout. Uh, So there's that element as well. It's a foreshadowing of Christ. 
And then also the story of Joseph records, forgive the analogy, but it records the gestation of the nation of Israel. This is a people of God conceived by the mind and heart of God that was given life through the lives and lineages of Abraham, Isaac, and then through Jacob. The story of Joseph chronicles the migration of this embryonic clan of people to Egypt, where it would grow over 400 years to its full term, if you will, before bursting forth from Egypt as a fully grown nation and then fulfilling this prophecy of God that God gave Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15 when he said this here. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And so we see that happening. You see, as a result of the famine in Egypt, or in Canaan, excuse me, Jacob, later, not tonight, right, but further down the story, they go from Canaan down to Egypt. And they end up at 400 years, just like God had told Abram. And then this, this, again, embryonic, if you will, little clan of people, this large family, over the course of that 400 years, grows into a nation, the nation of Israel. So uh, there's that aspect to it as well. And then finally, perhaps ultimately, what we have in the story of Joseph is God working his will through everyday events of life. Okay, other than the miracles, I mean, excuse me, other than the dreams, sorry, other than the dreams that God gives Joseph and then later on the, the butler and the baker, but other than the dreams, there are no miracles in this story, right? We read the ten plagues, we come over to the, the, the Exodus story and you read the plagues and uh, you see all that God did or during the wilderness wandering, you know, water coming out of the rock and healings and all this, but we don't have that in the Joseph story. Uh, we don't find, if we could say it this way, any of that sort of suspension of natural laws in the Joseph story. There's not a moment in here where God just causes the earth to stand still, you know, like he does later. Or where he backs up a river, you know, or these kinds of things. We don't have that here. Uh, but what we do have is a story of God's active hand in arranging arranging without show, arranging without explanation everything that's happening and moving it along down the course towards its appointed end. All right. Now that part is near to the end of the story when Joseph would say to his brothers in chapter 45, it wasn't you who sent me here, but God. Right. So there's so much good stuff in here in the story, in the life of story and study of Joseph about God's sovereignty and about how he works. Paul would echo this some 1,500 years later, right? Uh, that God works all things together for the good of those who loved him and are called according to his purposes. Well, here 1,500 years earlier, we see in the story of Joseph, God sovereignly working all circumstances for good and for the good of those whom he calls his own. It takes a while to get there, but it gets there. Now, that's all great discussion. That's all introduction. We'll get to a lot of that stuff 
in the next couple of weeks when we come towards the end of the story. But tonight we're going to go back to the very beginning of the story. And when we meet Joseph, he is a 17-year-old teenager. And uh, I don't ever want to say something about the text that the Word doesn't tell me. But I kind of get the impression he was a little bit cocky. Okay? I just, we'll read as we read this. See if you don't maybe also, all right? So, uh, verses, I'm going to read the whole chapter if y'all want to follow along. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 37 and uh, all the way down to verse 36. So, follow along or just listen. I will try to enunciate. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the others, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are you, or excuse me, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and a man asked him, What are you seeking? He said, I'm seeking my brothers. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. 
So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Then they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus their father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. It's kind of long, but there's a lot there to unpack. In what little time we have here left. Uh, so let's get going here. I want to break it down into three parts. And the first one we've called this, Joseph's rejection. Joseph's rejection. It's on your handout. and uh, the, Put in bold the three parts I'm breaking it down into there. Joseph's rejection. I'm not going to go back and read all of verses 1 through 11 again. But as the, as the story begins, we meet him. The text tells us he's out shepherding pasturing his father's flocks alongside some of his brothers. Uh, these brothers were full sons of Jacob's, but they were only half-brothers to Joseph, right? Uh, and so they had a secondary status in Jacob's affection. These weren't even sons of Leah, who would have been the lesser favorite of his two official wives. These four were sons of uh, the slaves, basically. If we want to sugarcoat it, we could say slave wives. But he violated his slaves, and these were the offspring. The text tells us elsewhere this was Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. It's not here in verse chapter 37, but previously when we read the story of those particular slave women, uh, it tells us who, who was born from them. So, Joseph's out there. He's with these other four. These other four aren't even Leah's children. They're slave children, right? So there's already this sort of this uh, sense of sort of uh, imbalance maybe there. Uh, and he's out there tending the flock with them. And he knows he's the favorite. Now, I don't want to play again. I don't want to be loose with the text when it doesn't tell us certain things, but there are certainly things we can infer. And so I imagine that the son of the favored wife and the four sons of the slaves that were half-brothers, 
I, I just imagine this was not the closest brotherly love relationship. Okay? Uh, and then this next part, I'm, I'm going to ask him about this someday. You know, we all have these things. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why, fill in the blank, right? Why were there wars on earth? Why this? You know, why, I, when I get to heaven, I want to ask why. I want to ask Joseph, why did you do this? What possessed you to do this? Here, listen to this. Let me come over here where I can read it because it's bigger. He says, Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. And I want to ask him why. The Bible tells us nothing about his motives. It just simply says he gave them a bad report. Now, that may seem like a small thing to you, but the Hebrew word for report here, uh, I put it in a thing, dibba, dibba, was always used everywhere else we find this construction in Scripture is used in a negative sense. And for something that wasn't a true report. <laughs> okay? Uh, so we're going to infer from that that it, even if it wasn't necessarily entirely false, we can say for certain that it wasn't entirely true. And then it gives us this. It says it was a bad report. And that's Hebrew ra'ah, which our English versions render as bad, but the Hebrew was stronger, and it carried with it a sense of evil. All right? So just from the Hebrew text, Joseph went back to daddy and made an evil, at least partially untrue report about his four half-brothers. And I want to know why. But the text doesn't tell us. <laughs> so I'm going to ask him someday. Was it exaggeration? Maybe it was just exaggeration. Maybe it was just hyperbole. Maybe some of the facts were right, but he was saying it in kind of a gossipy way to try to get his brothers in, in trouble. We don't really know. All we know is that it was this bad report and that he knew he was stoking the flames of resentment that they were already feeling towards him for being Rachel's son and Jacob's favorite. And so we can say that in this story that is so much about the sovereignty of God that from at least from, a, from the human standpoint, it's Joseph's own actions that got this ball rolling. <laughs> and so we keep reading then, and we see that, it, okay, so it was initiated by this exaggeration, and we keep reading and we find that it is intensified by Jacob's favoritism, right? Uh, verses 3 to 5, now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Favoritism was becoming or had become a generational sin in this family. Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. Rebekah loved Jacob more than Esau. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah and her children more than any of the others. Y'all, this is one reason I... I take it a little bit personally when one of my three children tells me that that one's the favorite. You know? I know y'all been there. Like, well, oh, well, she's your favorite because blank. Oh, no, she's your favorite because blank. Or no, he's your favorite because, you know what I tell them? I tell them Jake's my favorite son and my favorite firstborn. 
And Emily's my favorite middle child, and Sarah's my favorite youngest. They can't argue with that, right? But it's upsetting to you as a parent, isn't it, when you hear a child say, oh, well, so-and-so is your favorite, because your heart, in your heart, you don't want favorites. And yet with this crazy family from which God birthed his people, favoritism was a generational sin. So, be that as it may, <laughs> you would think, having watched Isaac for all those years favoring Esau, that Joseph, Jacob excuse me, would have been like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. But then here we go. See what they say. He loved him more than all the others because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors, a robe of many colors. Now, was it an amazing technicolor robe? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. Uh, it's interesting to me, this just interesting to me, may not be to you, but so much of our interpretation of this robe comes from the Latin and Greek translations of the Hebrew, uh, from the Greek Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate, how, how they interpreted this description of the robe has sort of just stuck with us over time. So was it very, very ornate? Probably, but we're not sure. Did it have lots and lots of colors in it? Maybe. Certainly would have made it more expensive because those dyes and everything would have been so much more expensive. Uh, but the text is a little ambiguous other than this. Regardless of the colors or the ornamentation, the problem with the coat was what it symbolized. What it symbolized. And what it symbolized was something that the other brothers were never, ever, ever going to get past. Okay? It was most likely a long-sleeved, long-legged robe that went from wrist to ankle. And it signified that Joseph was the offspring who, upon Jacob's death, would receive a double portion of all the inheritance. Joseph had a, excuse me, Jacob had a, a lot of offspring, you know. And so this robe is, hey, y'all are going to all divide all that up evenly except he gets double. I get double. Look at my robe. I get double. Don't you know they probably just loved that, the brothers? <laughs> uh, so think about this, though. He's not the firstborn. If you count the slave women... He wasn't even the second or the third born, but he's the firstborn of Rachel. So again, the favoritism rearing its ugly head and messing all this up, you know. It's not to be too surprising, I guess, from the guy who reached up to grab his brother's leg and pull him back into the womb when they were being born. Well, that's Jacob. Well, they did. Uh, so... Maybe Joseph kicked things off with his bad report, got that ball rolling, but Jacob's favoritism only serves to intensify those feelings of animosity, only serves to intensify the rejection that Joseph was facing. So at this point, you're wondering, okay, now, where's God in all of this? Surely we're going to read on here, and we're going to read that God stepped out of heaven into history at this moment and intervened somehow in order to make peace and calm the tensions. Right? That wouldn't be unlike God's character, right? to bring peace, bring about a more pleasant outcome. 
So where is he in all of this? One commentator said it this way, where was God? He was adding fuel to the fire. Now, maybe that's, maybe fuel to adding fuel to the fire, maybe that's, maybe that sounds, that's too much, right? We don't want to go that far. We don't like that image. But we have to recognize his activity in this way that if Joseph's rejection was initiated by his own exaggeration and intensified by Jacob's favoritism, that that rejection was being assured by God's revelation. As Chuck said, he's given him these dreams. Now, we want to read on. So he gave him these dreams, and the dreams served to calm the tide, right? No. God gives him these dreams that make it, from a human standpoint, worse, right? Uh, He had a dream, and when he told it to him, they, they hated him even more. Listen to this dream I've dreamed. Behold, we were all out binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Now, if you know that you have a slightly tense relationship with your siblings, wouldn't you want to keep that to yourself? I mean, like, come on, Joseph. Uh, (laughs) So, uh, yeah, and as we read on, the dream obviously was that the time would come that he would be the tall, upright one, and that they would gather around and they would bow down before him. And they didn't want to hear anything about it at that particular moment in time. We know from the story, y'all know from the story, that later on, indeed, uh, that was going to happen. But at this particular moment, you know, they're living this in real time. All they're thinking is, are you kidding me? He's already the favorite, and now he's going to go rub it in our face by telling us that we're going to bow down to him someday, you know? And the text says they hated him even more. So this is a literary device that we find right here. It repeats it three times. It starts off when they give him the robe, and then the first dream, uh, and then it says they hated him, and then it says they hated him even more. And the idea is this building intensity of the hatred. That's why it repeats it three times, so that we can't miss the fact that this hatred that they feel towards him is growing. It's not diminishing. Every time he opens his mouth, it gets worse for them. You want to just go, Joseph, please stop while you're behind. Um, But he keeps going, and then he tells them the second dream. Oh, hey, by the way, I had a second dream. Y'all want to hear it? You know, this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars, they all came and bowed down to me too. Right? Come on, man. Uh, So this time it's not just the brothers, but it's mom and dad too. And so Jacob finally speaks up, and he's like, really? Your mom and I are going to bow down to you now too? So even Jacob's kind of getting the sense of it here. Uh, but here's the thing about the dreams. Again, the text doesn't just say it blatantly, but there's no way to read this any other way than that God gave Joseph these dreams. That's what we're supposed to take away from this. He hadn't had hallucinogenic mushrooms. He hadn't eaten something, you know, to give him heartburn the night before that caused him to be up all night. No. What we're supposed to take away from this text is that God gave him these dreams. And so, again, if the outcome that we want from this story is that Joseph and his brothers will live in peace and harmony all the days of their lives, 
God comes along, and through these dreams he gave Joseph, he all but assured that that was not going to happen. This doesn't make God bad. It doesn't make him mischievous. It just means he knew things they didn't know yet, and he was working his plan toward that end. Uh, Walter Brueggemann, the New Testament theologian, said it this way. He said, the listener will understand that the dream is the unsettling work of Yahweh upon which everything else depends. Right? So as uncomfortable from a human standpoint as this moment is, like, we, we read that in the context now, and it's even a little cringy for us, right? Like, he would really say that to his brothers? Man, like, what an arrogant little teenage kid. Uh, but... It had to happen that way. It had to happen that way for all this other stuff uh, to unfold. So all that's Jacob's rejection. We got 12 minutes, 22 minutes. Y'all want to keep going just a little bit more? Okay. I mean, technically we have till 7.30, but I don't want to, like, keep you past your ability to, like, not be bored. So I'm going to keep going to 7.30. Y'all can stay if you want. Uh, so... Then we come along to the brother's retaliation. And I'm going to do some paraphrasing at this point for the sake of time, I guess. But basically, um, in uh, still in chapter 37 there in verse 12, it tells us that the brothers had gone up north, further north, to go work the flocks up there. Let me stop right there. Uh, this tells us a little something about what God had given them already now go back to like genesis 12 in your mind just in your mind like don't turn there but you know pastor don just did this series on the eight stories and to me two stories that go hand in hand that are just i just love the relationship between these two stories is this the story of babel and the calling of abraham and the reason i love these two stories and the way they go hand in hand is because in from from the fall in Genesis 3, I'm off my notes here, y'all, this is not on there, this is just me talking. From the fall of Genesis 3, the sin enters the world, until this point in Genesis chapter 11, we just see the world, with, the, with, with a couple of moments of exception, Noah being one, um, Enosh being another, but by and large, it's just this downward trajectory for the whole first 11 chapters of excuse me, Genesis 3 to 11 anyway, it's just this, this downward trajectory. And this downward trajectory culminates in chapter 11 when they're trying to build the Tower of Babel. And so we know how that story goes, and God says, I'm going to separate them, I'm going to disperse them, and I'm going to mix up their languages and confuse them. And so it's in that moment, at that point in time, people had lived relatively close to one another for throughout ancient history up to that point and because of their pride and their sin and their arrogance god said no more and so he scattered everybody all over the world and mixed up all the languages and that's how genesis 1 to 11 ends with just this very sort of pessimistic moment where god had just said fine go your own way and you're not gonna be able to communicate right that's what's so cool. Then Genesis 12 begins with the calling of Abraham. So right after this dispersion of all the people, we see God beginning to call people back unto himself. And that's, that's, that's what makes the calling of Abraham so pivotal in, the, in just salvation history is because 
it follows that moment of dispersion, that, that hopeless moment where people are scattered all over the world with like no hope, no way, no means of grace, no way to have a walk with God, nothing. And then the very next chapter in Genesis 12, it says, then God called Abraham. Yeah, that's so cool. So anyway, getting back more to kind of the point. Uh, when God called Abraham, I'm making a map. This is the river. This is the Fertile Crescent. Canaan's over here by the Mediterranean. He's over here in Ur of the Chaldeans. And the Tigris, Euphrates, they're up here. Y'all with me? He's living over here. Canaan's over here, the promised land. Calls him and says, you, you don't have a clue who I am, but I'm God. And you need to move over here. And he did it. He did it. That's faith. Right, that's faith. So, uh, I'm getting there. Uh, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, and Esau, right? The point I'm trying to get at is, this place where they were tending their, their flock was like 64 miles, uh, it's like 64 miles away from where they were. They were down in Hebron, and they go first to Shechem and then to Dothan, 64 miles to where they're, now, that's a, that's a pretty good-sized pasture, you know? I mean, that's almost like King Ranch, kind of, right? But that's the blessings of God on this family up to this point. Why? Because they've done all these great, no, because of their faith. Faith. Okay, so anyway, so he's off up there 64 miles away. He arrives at Shechem. They're not there either. They go up to Dothan. So he's 64 miles away from home, and he's alone. And maybe that wouldn't have been a big deal if he'd had a good relationship with them. Maybe if they'd been looking forward to seeing him, it wouldn't have mattered that he's traveling alone. But alas, he's traveling alone. And so we're, say he's traveling, uh, he's, he's missing the protection of his father. He, that's what he's missing here. He's missing protection. He's not missing his robe. He's got that. Didn't want to leave that back there, you know. Because let me be honest with you. If I'm going to go walking for five and a half days through barren wasteland, Wilderness, let me not forget my fanciest coat. So it's just, again, window into his psyche. Uh, but anyway, he didn't forget that, but he's up there without the protection. And then because he finds himself 64 miles from home, alone, without the protection of his father, what do you know? He encounters his brother's murderous premeditation. And we read there in the text, they're like, hey, let's just kill him. Let's, uh, let's kill him. And we're going to throw him in this pit. Now, this pit was probably a water cistern that was empty. You know, uh, so good. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, uh, through the prophets, God refers to their empty, wrong-headed religion as like a broken cistern that can't hold water. He says, I'm like this continuous fountain of fresh, living water, and you guys prefer this broken cistern over here that can't hold water. That's, that's elsewhere in the Old Testament, but it's just a great picture uh, of, uh, of what it's like to try to have a relationship with religion instead of a relationship with the living God. Well, in this moment, they're going to throw him down into one of these broken cisterns that's not holding any water at the moment. And they're going to throw him into this cistern, and this would have been a, uh, a, just, a, just a real supreme dishonor because even going back to ancient civilizations, there was a a certain expectation of the decorum that you would go about by burying someone, what would be involved in the burial process. Uh, and, and 
all the symbolism of what it, what it inferred and what it implied. And so to just dump a body in a pit and leave it there was what would later, after the law would be given, that would just be considered horribly unclean. That would be a violation. Uh, we're not there yet. The law hadn't been given yet. But even then, it was just a supreme dishonor to just dump it there. And yet that's what they were going to do until Reuben grew a conscience. Until Reuben uh, grew a conscience. And so on your notes, I have it this way. I say a Reuben's fortunate interruption. Now, it was fortunate for Joseph. It wasn't necessarily fortunate. It was Reuben's interruption, but it was fortunate for Joseph. But I just put it on there as Reuben's fortunate interruption. And so Reuben was like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come back and get him to himself. He didn't tell them. But he had every intention of coming back and getting him out of there and bringing him back safely uh, to Jacob. And uh, so he devises this plan. Hey, instead of killing him, let's just leave him in the pit. Okay. And so by doing that, he saved his life. But unfortunately for Joseph, that wasn't all that happened. I'm going to take a minute on this one. I'm going to actually read this one. Uh, because now he's going to suffer a gruesome humiliation. Uh, Reuben said, shed no blood, throw him in this pit in the wilderness, don't lay a hand on him, because he was going to go back and rescue him out of his hand and restore him to his father. Now, mind you, up to this point, he's still not there. This is the conversation they're having about him before he gets there. Uh, they're still seeing him kind of from a distance coming. But then it says, when he arrived, how does it word it? When Joseph came to his brother's, it just says this, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And so we can read that with our modern sensibilities. Can I say it that way? Kind of our modern sensibilities. We know right from wrong. You know, we, we, uh, we, we believe we're at least culturally evolved beyond what maybe some people might have called animal instincts and these sorts of things, right? We, we, you know, we, we, we're Western civilization. We're educated, you know, we're whatever. And so we read this, they, they, they stripped him of his robe and threw him in a pit. And it's possible that we can read that without quite really considering just how bad that scene really was that day. Uh, the, uh, the Hebrew word there, when it says they stripped him of his coat, is this word pashat. And over in Leviticus, it's the same word that they use for skinning an animal. Now, I'm not telling you they skinned him alive. The text doesn't tell us they did that. I don't think they skinned him alive or anything like that. But if you've ever skinned an animal, some of you might have, you know, you, you don't just kind of make one little cut and then it all just kind of nice peels off like, you know, like a cellophane or something. That's, that's not the image here. He didn't just walk up and go, okay, take my coat. Uh, this word is violent. This word, it's, it's a violent action. And so imagine then, if you will, depending on where Reuben was, 10 or 11 guys on one 
physically removing his clothes off of him while he's trying to put up a fight. You know, this, this is a horrible moment uh, when you think about it. And so that's why I said it's a, it's a gruesome humiliation uh, that these half-brothers are doing to their, to their half-brother, uh, Joseph. And uh, then it says they threw him in the pit. It didn't have any water in it. And so they go to leave him there. And uh, verse 25 just tells you something about their state of mind and their heart towards him in this moment. Then they sat down to eat. While he's screaming his head off. Well, that was fun. Let's go get a sandwich. Like, I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to think. There's, there's a few. There's probably some movies out there that I've seen and maybe shouldn't have where the antagonist has just this murderous whatever way about him and just feels no remorse whatsoever. And these movies are made in such a way so that you feel just this awfulness. You feel inside. You feel dirty. You feel wrong. You feel it because you're, you're realizing this, this murderous person shows no remorse whatsoever, right? Uh, and yet, that's just, this isn't a movie. This is like, this really happened. Uh, and like Chuck said, imagine this. He's down there just screaming, you know, Reuben. Judah, Dan, Asher, somebody, please don't do this to me. After they had just physically, you know, ugh. But, thankfully that's not where it ends, is it? And I call this Judah's divine intervention. And I say it that way on purpose because Judah the brother in this moment is an instrument in the hand of God whether he knows it or not. And the text tells us, uh, let me just go over here and find it, do it right. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our own hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. Now, what was Judah's mo motivation in this moment? We don't know. Maybe he really did just want 20 shekels of silver. And maybe he really wasn't any better than any of the others. It's possible. Uh, it's possible that he's just as sorry as the rest of them, and he just wanted his 20 bucks. And he said, we got to get something out of this deal, so let's at least sell him to these guys. I don't know. We don't know his motivation. But the reason I said this was his div it's a divine intervention is because what we do know is, uh, moving all the way back towards the end of the book of Genesis, in chapter 49, verses 8 through 10, that Jacob named Judah to be a bearer of the Messianic line. And we know from our Old Testament history that David rose up out of the tribe of Judah and that out of the lineage of David was born who? Jesus. And so whatever his motivation was, whatever he should maybe say it this way, Whatever Judah thought his motivation was for saying, let's not kill him, let's at least get something out of this deal, 
let's sell them to these traders. So whatever he thought his motivation was, that was a divine intervention into this story because God used that decision to work things in the life of Judah such that Jacob would grant favor so that later David, King David, comes up out of it and then later is born Christ. And so, again, we don't know what his motive was, but this was, this was God putting Joseph where he wanted him to be. And I got a note here on here. It says this, in spite of everything that happened that day and later, Joseph never once played the victim card. Never in the stories. You read on, you read the stories uh, about Potiphar's wife, you read the stories about the imprisonment, you read the stories about the dreams while he's in prison, you read the story about how they forgot about him after they promised him they wouldn't, and then they remembered him later, and then they went back for him. The whole time, we never once read Joseph say, why me? Poor me. And this stands out to me, uh, I'll just tell you, a, a few years ago, a few years ago, uh, I heard a message on this story, and the preacher was sort of casting himself as the Joseph character in the story, and he was focusing on all of the bad things that had happened to Joseph, and was almost kind of giving this, see how I've been the victim of all of these circumstances, just like Joseph was the victim of all of his circumstances. And something about didn't really set right with me, you know, but I didn't quite grasp it at the moment until later, it's because the text doesn't allow us to do that with this story. This isn't a story of victimhood. This is a story of God's grace manifesting itself through these activities over a long period of time. And so, anyway, we're not going to ever find him playing the victim here. I've got five minutes, so I'm going to do this as fast as I can. Uh, Jacob's grief, okay? Uh, broke it down this way, painful deception. So um, after they sell him off, and I know y'all know the story, but it's just sometimes good to remember the details. After they sell him off, they take the robe, they, they kill a goat, they dip it in the blood, they bring it to the dad, and they go, we found this, right? Deception. They didn't. <laughs> they took it. It's not his blood. Uh, and then... Jacob's reaction is just, it's, the brothers let him draw false conclusions because it suits their own purposes, or they think it does, right? He sees and he goes, oh, it's my son's robe. This means a fierce animal has devoured him. They knew a fierce animal hadn't devoured him, but Jacob sees it, he sees the blood, and that's what he thinks, that's the conclusion he draws, and so they just continue down the road of this deception, like, oh, a fierce animal has devoured him, and there's no way that he has not been torn to pieces. Now, there have been moments in my life where I have not had, like, 100% always kumbaya moments with my own father. But I cannot fathom a situation where if something happened to my sister... I could allow my father to go through that kind of grief knowing it wasn't true. I just, look, I sin. I'm not any better than those 11 brothers. I know that. I'm just telling you, I can't imagine a moment like that where I would allow my dad to draw those wrong conclusions and just become so consumed with that amount of grief 
that I, I'd have to step in and say something. But that's, what the, that's what's going on here. They allowed him to draw, through their deception, they allowed him to draw that conclusion that this son of his, the beloved, most prized son, had been literally torn to pieces by an animal, which ironically, I guess, wasn't that far from the truth. Just the animal were some of their own sons, his own sons. But he goes to this, uh, I say that he makes this extraordinary expression, and I put in your notes, I'll go to my grave. What he says is, when I go down to Sheol to see him, and what he's basically saying is, I'm going to grieve his death until the day I die. And the reason I said that's an extraordinary expression is because that was so far beyond the conventional practices of that day. In ancient history, parents would traditionally mourn the death of a child for a week. I can't imagine that. Uh, maybe it's just officially. I suppose infant mortality was more common then. But that was sort of the practice. You take this full week of just full-on intense sackcloth and ash kind of mourning uh, if you lose a child, right? And then just for context or for comparison's sake, I just made a note here. When Moses died, the Israelites mourned for a month. Now, this was Moses, okay? And they mourned for an entire month. And yet here's Jacob over his son saying, I'm never going to get over this until the day I die which maybe was more honest. Uh, but that's, that's sort of the despair that's going on right now, in the, at least in the, at home. That's the level of despair in the house, if you will. But here's the cool thing. Far, 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 far away from that house in Hebron, the Bible says here in verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. All right, there's your distant expectation that in spite of all that grief and all that mourning and all that was taking place back home, back in Canaan there in Hebron, way off down in Egypt. Oh, by the way, the Midianites sold him into the house of Potiphar, who was the captain of the guard for Pharaoh. And that chapter ends letting us see a glimpse that Joseph's now in the place where God would put him to be so that he could later save his family. And here's what we know about his family. By putting him in a place to later save his family, God was putting him in a place where he could later be a savior to God's own people. And so what we see is that the God of history is at work here in this whole series of unfortunate events. So just real quick, some application, right? Uh, just as we live our lives, as we go from this place, I, I know we all, we, we, we hold fast and firm to the idea that God's in control and nothing, you know, his eyes on the sparrow, right? But sometimes we need to think about other people too, okay? And so as we, as we kind of think about this story, what, how, what does this mean for us when we go from here, we go to live our lives? The first one is this, everyone is wounded. Everyone's wounded. Joseph was wounded. Jacob was wounded. The brothers were wounded. You know, we don't give them much of a pass, but you got to know it hurt their feelings to know that their daddy loved this other one so much more. There's just all kinds of hurt and human pain going on here. Everyone's wounded, and life is unfair. I don't, I tell, well, I tell that to my kids sometimes, that's kind of being callous, but it's, it's not callous. It just is. 
you know, and I don't say it callously in this moment, like, and life is, un- everyone's wounded and life is unfair. No, it, it is unfair. And it's, sometimes it stinks. <laughs> you know, sometimes it stinks. It would stink to be thrown into a pit. You know, and metaphorically, some of you may feel like you're in a pit sometimes. And sometimes you just have to go, man, it's not fair. It's not fair. And all the platitudes in the world don't, don't make it fair. But, number three, God is at work. So that's the thing. All the platitudes in the world don't make it fair, but the solace is the knowledge of the fact that even in the midst of all the unfairness and all the injustice and all the stuff, God is at work. And number four, his plans are sure. And we're getting a glimpse of that now in the story as it ends with Joseph being sold off there in Egypt to Potiphar's household. We're going to really see it come into focus uh, over the next two weeks as we get farther down into the end of the story. Uh, his plans are sure. He's at work and his plans are sure. And so this brings me then to the fifth one. So live filled with hope and optimism. And maybe that's just me wanting to share an exhortation with people I care about. But I, I if God is who we say he is, If God is who we sing him to be on Sunday mornings, and if he's who we preach him to be on Sunday mornings, and it's who we teach him to be in our life group, and if he's all these things we say he is, and he's all these things we claim to believe about him, if he is this God, then we can live with hope and optimism regardless of what is happening in the world. And y'all, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm out over time leave it's fine i'm just gonna say this y'all sometimes some christians i'm not saying all christians i'm not pointing the finger anymore sometimes some christians are the most negative people i encounter yeah i know you can't believe it you know and i just want to say sometimes turn off the radio Or at least change the dial. Turn off the television. Get outside. Love somebody. Do something for somebody, right? We we above all people have so much more to be optimistic about because we have a hope that transcends all human understanding, right? And so I just think about that in the context of this with with Joseph, right? To see how the story's unfolding and all this. If we believe that he's at work, if we know his plans are sure, then we ought to be the ones out there living lives full of hope and optimism and not the ones, I'm not saying y'all are, but just we kind of have to always be on guard against this. Uh, If the world's going to hell in a handbasket, then I'm going with it with hope and optimism because I know how the story ends and you do too, right? We have a so much better story to tell. We've got a better story to tell. Let's tell a better story. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the life of Joseph. Father, we do thank you that through the story of Joseph and all of this human failure and all of this generational sin that we see unfolding here, even in the beginning and the details of this story, Lord, there's not a... 
inkling of an idea in this story that you're not ultimately in control of at all. And Lord, thank you that we do know how this story unfolds so that we can have some of the perspective that we have on it, Lord. Uh, But God, I just pray that as we think about sin, as we think about injustice, as we think about how life isn't fair and all these things, and maybe sometimes we do wonder if we're not Joseph, Lord. Remind us that he never played the victim card. And so, Lord, let us walk through this world confident that you're at work. Remind us that your plans are sure. And, Lord, help us to be people who exude the hope of Jesus Christ and the optimism that comes from walking with you. So, Lord, thank you for your word. Just uh, keep everybody safe going home. Forgive me for going over. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.